Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This lives inside of a machine. This was born out of a frustration with the superficial two-dimensional nature of social media. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm Brad Listy, sitting here in Los Angeles, California, with mediocre posture in an ergonomically designed desk chair. It's nice to be with you. How are you today? How is your... Uh, worldview. Lauren Grodstein is my guest today. Her new novel, The Explanation for Everything, is now available from Algonquin Books. It is the official October selection of the TNB Book Club, The Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is, once again, uh, my online culture magazine and literary community. We have a monthly book club. Most of you know this already. If you're interested in joining the club, uh, which I think you should do, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, in other news, what is going on? What's happening with me? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I'm careening into middle age, uh, feeling increasingly uncertain of humanity's ability to improve itself. Uh, I move through my days under the weight of a tremendous 
uh, psychic burden, which is both onerous and, I imagine, incredibly common. Uh, I often question who on earth my real friends are and find myself relating more and more to the plight of Sisyphus. Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night on a semi-regular basis and spend long, dark, pitiful hours staring up at my ceiling while magnifying my fears and enumerating my many personal failures. Uh, Also, I am persistently worried about money. I am often creatively blocked. I am regularly tortured by class status anxiety, which feels both silly and humiliating. Uh, And I am terrified of dying alone. How about you? How are you doing? You good? Uh, it's not that bad. It's really not. It's like one-eighth that bad. Maybe one-sixth. You know what I'm saying? Um, It's just the human condition. There's a lot of suffering out there. People suffer. Everyone is suffering. And I think we need to acknowledge this. And uh, here's something else that I think. Uh, There are people on this planet right now who are really good at being alive. They have a knack for it. They work at it. They have uh, discovered methods that tend to be effective. I believe this. And uh, I think we need to find these people, the rest of us, need to find these people and uh, we need to beat them up. Or uh, we need to emulate them. One of the two. Uh, You know, who's good at this? That's what I want to know. Who's really good at this? If you're out there and uh, for some reason you're listening, please email me and tell me how to be. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. You can also leave me a voicemail over at the show's website, uh, which is otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail over in the right sidebar. So... Uh, How's that for a rant? Did you like that? It's all about caffeine and uh, cumulative exhaustion. It's a transference of energy. Uh, What I'm doing right now, ladies and gentlemen, is I am coming at you with a brain full of low-grade amphetamines and a heart full of uh, friendly panic. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Lauren Grodstein. Uh, you're going to like her. She's a charmer. Uh, she has charm. 
and she happens to be a terrifically talented writer, and I'm very pleased to be featuring her work in the TNB Book Club this month. So uh, let's get started. Here we go, folks. This is Lauren Grodstein, and her novel, once again, is called The Explanation for Everything. I'm in a hotel room at the Omni in Providence, Rhode Island. And if I turn my head to the left, I can see what is almost certainly the Rhode Island State House. The legendary Omni Hotel in Providence. Yeah, that, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're on book tour. I'm on book tour. How many cities have you done so far? So I can't. On this particular leg, I've been uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Chicago, Portland, Providence, which is where I am now, and then Exeter, and then I go home for five days, and then San Francisco. Okay, so with this book, and the, you know, it deals with uh, intelligent design and evolution and issues of uh, the hereafter, issues of uh, religious philosophy, etc. It seems like maybe you should be in like the Bible Belt or somewhere like that doing this tour. I did. I started in Nashville. Um, which is, was home of the, the Scopes Monkey Trial, and um, which is which is great. And I mean, the thing about a book tour is that you you don't really get to see a place unless you're pretty invested. And whenever I travel, I'm pretty invested in um, eating more than like meeting people. So I basically I view every uh, stop on the way as an you know sort of like a like a a wholesome opportunity, you know, not for gluttony necessarily, but just for like place, <laughs> like I get to experience place. Sure. So in Nashville, that meant that I went, um, I had a lot of Southern food, including a pimento cheese sandwich, which if you haven't had one of these things, it's outrageous. I don't, I mean, I don't know, Brad, about like, 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 where are you from? Am I telling you, are you from Nashville? And for me to tell you what a pimento cheese sandwich is like, you know, like telling a Jew what a bagel is. I don't, where are no, you? No, I mean, I've had a pimento okay. cheese sandwich, but I'm from the, okay. I'm from the Midwest, but my parents are from Louisiana. So I understand. Oh, okay. So you have some food in your history, probably. Oh, yes. That's good. Lots of, yeah. lots of fried food and sweet tea and things of that nature. Yeah. Right. So I don't, so I'm from like, you know, the Bronx <laughs> originally. So I don't have any of that. So Nashville, it would have been, I'm sure a terrific place for me to really get into the, um, history of the, battle over um, evolution, but instead it was a place for me to eat a lot of um, pork products, which I did with gusto. And then um, from, and, and, and before that I'd been in Decatur, which is also, Georgia, which is also a great place to eat. And then, and, and you know, like I'm driving from Providence to Exeter, so before I got on the phone with you, I was looking for where to have lobster rolls on the T-shirt. <laughs> And I've got it down to two places. So that that sort of that's kind of what I like to do while I'm traveling. In part because thinking about my book constantly makes me like it makes me not fun. It makes me a nervous wreck. And you know, at home, I live in like I live in South Jersey. I live with a small child and a, a husband who's sort of a vegan, and my kid who's sort of a pain in the butt. So um, like our, our our home life in terms of food is like a lot of reheated fake chicken or reheated processed chicken, which is basically fake. So, so when I'm on the road, I get to eat whatever I want, and that makes me happy. You're like Anthony Bourdain, essentially. Yeah. I'm like Anthony Bourdain, but I have nothing to prove and no, no cameras. Okay. And, I, I, and just in case anyone is like out there thinking, oh, we're listening to like a woman who weighs 300 pounds, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I'm just going to let you think about that. I'm just going to let you think about what it is that's making you think about that. You know what I mean? It's their issues. 
Yeah. I might look like anything. I might look like a woman who's going to drive 100 miles for a lobster roll. That might be what I look like. <laughs> so here's a question for you. Uh, because yeah. It sounds like maybe you ha- you're plagued by the same thing that I am. But um, why why am I always starving every time I'm in an airport, even though I know? Starving. Well, well, there are two different. One is because uh, food in airports has no calories, so it's a good time for you to be hungry because then no matter what you eat, it it, it, it doesn't make you less hungry because it actually has no nutritive value, but also it doesn't count because there's nothing in it. And two, because your brain goes on shut. Like, you need something to be alive in an airport, right? You need some basic human experience. You're not going to have unless – you're, unless you're really – um, scandals, you're probably not going like, to have sex in an airport. You're not going to sleep in an airport. I mean, maybe you will, but you probably won't. So, like, what's the human function that you can... And, I mean, you can go to the bathroom, but that doesn't take that long. So, like, what's the human function you can indulge in in an airport? It's eating. So, I think that airports are so deadening that you need to eat to be reminded that you are a human, alive person. That's as good of an explanation as I've ever heard. And, and like, Thank you. The airports are filthy. I find myself... And especially now that I'm a parent, I think I've gotten more into hand sanitizer than I probably should yeah. be. But like, it's like I'm in airports and everything just feels gross. And it's gross. And it's then, totally gross. Yeah, I just and I've I've gone on rants on this program before about how people who eat like hot, smelly food on airplanes are, you know, essentially to me like uh, criminals. Ha. <laughs> And, uh, no, is that you? Wrong. <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah, that was me saying, "Ha, here's here who are through the criminal." You clearly have not spent a lot of time on uh, bus on long distance buses, which I believe Bill Bryson said are like, um, you know, you know that you've hit you've, you've skidded to the very bottom of America when you start spending a lot of time on long distance like Greyhound buses, which <laughs> I have in my life. It's not the people who bring that smelly food on the airplanes or in the airports. It's the people who bring the smelly food and sit it sit next to you on the hound from Philadelphia to New York and eat it and like, like suck on the, you know, the, the marrow of whatever they're eating the entire oh drive. My God. It sounds like, yeah. it honestly sounds like my version of personal hell. I have like a thing with yep. slurping and like, <laughs> like loud eating, whether it's like crunching, just like I, I need, like, yeah. uh, let me put it to you this way. Like it might be so, it might be almost be like a pathology with me. Like I would prefer to never eat a, a meal at a quiet dinner table with a group of people ever. I'd be perfectly happy. Like I, my family, I could care less about family dinner. Uh, <laughs> I want noise. Sure. I want noise. There should be music yeah. at least some sort of like, I don't want the sounds of mastication. So that you can avoid what's actually happening at the table. I don't want which any is part the of it. beginning of the digestive process. Right. I like, and like how old is your kid? Three. So do you find that his or her is a boy or girl? It's a little girl. And no, she doesn't, honestly, like as a parent. She can't gross you out, right? Like her eating is adorable no matter what. Yeah, it's still adorable. But there could be, there could come a time yeah. when that, that leaves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as, as her father, it's your honor bound to tell her when that moment arrives. Yeah. Well, I think that'll be, that'll be good for her and your relationship. I'm just, you know, and I like to, I like time with my family. I like time with people that I, that I love, you know, like I like to be with friends. It's just like. The quiet dinner table. I like to be at a restaurant. As long as we're at a restaurant, it's fine. Like it's not like I can't eat at a table with people, but it's just that quiet meal. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> that drives me crazy. So um, these Greyhound bus trips that you've been you yeah. you've been on a lot of long distance bus trips. What uh, was the reason for this? You need a reason? No. Um, <laughs> I um, so I teach it. The Camden campus of Rutgers University, Camden, which the week I got the job, was the New York Times um, had a headline comparing it to Fallujah, and I don't know Fallujah's been out of the news for a while, but like in 2000. 
five, six. Fallujah was code for, you know, like ninth circle. Um, and Camden, New Jersey, where I teach, evidently had a similar murder rate or something. So, so and that was like above the fold on the Times. But they also, not only do they have a, a shockingly high murder rate, they also had a tenure track creative writing job. So, like, <laughs> you tell me, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I took the job because I'm not insane. And, um, but I was living in Brooklyn and I refused to leave Brooklyn because I'm, I wasn't, because I was insane actually. Um, and I, I was still in that place that I think you're allowed to be for like six or seven years and then you have to get over it where like Brooklyn is, it's very important. Like it's, it's central to your identity. Like, who are you? I'm someone who lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> so what that meant was instead of doing a normal thing, like moving to Philadelphia, which is actually, you can walk from Philadelphia to Camden. It's just over a bridge or even to one of the sort of cute towns in Southern New Jersey that surround Camden. I got on the Greyhound at five thirty in the morning frequently to get to Philadelphia, where then I would then transfer to a sort of low rent um, subway system, taking it from Philadelphia to Camden, where I would teach. How long? So, was that, how long was that commute? Uh, it depended on traffic. The worst, worst ever would be three and a half hours. Best ever, two hours. No, it was never two hours. If you included the subway, two and a half to three and a half. Wow. I mean, it was, ter- it was just insane and terrible, and there was no good reason except that we had a two-bedroom for $1,700 in Park Slope, so we were like, we can't leave that. Okay, <laughs> you know? no, that's a good – This is you bring up an interesting point because I've, talk- yeah. I've talked about place a lot on this show, um, maybe too much, where I'm asking people where they live and asking them how they like it and comparing it to my experience in Los Angeles, but I don't think I've mm-hmm. ever heard somebody – um, talk about it in quite the way that you did early, just a moment ago where you were saying that, you know, place is tied to identity and like how we think of ourselves. Like I'm a person who lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I'm a writer from Brooklyn as opposed right. to I'm a writer who lives in South Jersey or I'm a writer who lives right. in Albuquerque or whatever. And I think because like, you know, we're bumping up against all of that, like Los Angeles, big city stuff, cost of living. Like mm-hmm. how, do, how do we want to raise our kid? Can I continue to be creative? Um, et cetera. And yet there's a part of me that's like, I, I don't want to leave this town where big things happen. And right. it's interesting and cosmopolitan and weird. And like, would I be bored? As a dear friend of mine who's living, I mean, you know, in, 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 in a very least second world conditions in Brooklyn with um, a couple of kids, a big dog at about 300 square feet um, and, a, and a, a six foot husband and herself. She's like, I just need to be part of the conversation. <laughs> well, well, what conversation are you having? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, what is this conversation? Cause I don't think I want to be part of whatever it is you guys are talking about in that house. Um, no, but there is right. Like there's the sense that when you leave, I felt this profoundly. I was born in, I was actually, I was born in Brooklyn. Um, and my family lived in LA for a little while. And then I did most of my growing up in New Jersey. But when I was 17, I left for college uh, in New York city. And I stayed there till I was 31. Um, and now I've lived in New Jersey for the past five years. So during that time, those three years when I was commuting from Brooklyn to Camden, what I, I really felt like being in Brooklyn was so important to who I, who I'd been, you know, as a kid, even who I was going to be, I was a New Yorker. I wasn't someone who drove. I wasn't someone who needed a car. I was someone who could do all sorts of cool things, which really amounted to having a beer at the bar in the corner, you know, like (laughs) at 11 at night, like that's not that cool. But I I told myself that was like an intrinsic part of being a Brooklynite. Um, And it was also during this time when Brooklyn was really changing the, the, 
you know, I remember in high school volunteering at a soup kitchen in Park Slope. Um, and that soup kitchen became like a shoe store or something, you know, by the time I lived there. So I was, I was between the time I was in high school and the time I was in my mid twenties, Brooklyn was just became a different thing. And it felt sort of exciting to be there. And as I think I've made overly clear, I love to eat and Brooklyn is pretty delicious. And so, you know, for all of those reasons, but let me tell you, it is much, much better in ways I could never have understood until I tried it to be a South Jersey writer versus being a Brooklyn writer. Because frankly, I don't need like, you know, Jonathan Lethem and and Saffron Foer and like, I don't need that for competition On, on the Barnes and Noble like local writer's shelf at my 7th Avenue Barnes & Noble in Brooklyn were people, you know, Paul Oster, people who <laughs> I, 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 you're not going to get any sort of traction there unless you like physically lift your book from the back of the store and stick it in. Um, but you, in have South you ever, Jersey, have you, ever done that? have you ever actually physically moved your book within a store? Be honest. <laughs> Would I would I suggest would would that even occur to me if I had? <laughs> I've done it. I, I will cop to that as well. Of course, I, I've done it. Yeah, of course. It's like why are they? What are they doing? No one, you know. It's like nobody puts baby in a corner. It's like that kind of right, right. No one puts Gradstein in a corner. No, people put Gradstein in a corner all the damn time. So I have to rectify that. Um, but when you move to a place where there there aren't a lot of writers, you know, or you move to a place where there are a lot of like social workers and nurses and you know podiatrists and uh, construction workers. And, you know, I moved to, to um, a place that, that really thinks being a writer is super cool. It's not the thing your babysitter does, you know, while she's getting her MFA. It's like the thing that, that your local magazine runs a profile on you because you've done it. Um, so it, it, I think it was a huge career boost for me simply to get out of Brooklyn, but and and to to move to a place where I get a lot of local press, I you know I'm on NPR now, the Philadelphia NPR station, but great, you know, um, I get all the you know local newspapers and magazines love to talk to me. They do stuff on my house. It's a fine house. It's not an amazing house, but like my house has been profiled twice in the local papers because what are you going to talk about? <laughs> right, right. What's up with your house? Is it like some? You talk about the Jew who writes. Um, I. <laughs> And my house is old. My, I have a very cool house. I have a cool house that cost what a studio would have cost in Park Slope. It is um, from uh, 1848. was sort of when the original deed, which I have in my house, was recorded. I have all of the deeds through the 70s. And so I know like how much the house was $500 to purchase in 1848. It's... Um, got very, very old wooden floors. It has wavy glass windows. Um, but the thoughtful people we bought it from also installed central air. So it has, Beautiful. it has, it's like an okay place to live. Um, it has, um, smooth sort of paving stones in the back that, uh, in the, in the very small backyard that my husband thinks, um, are gravestones. And I think were probably the foundation of an outhouse, <laughs> but I have no idea what an outhouse requ- like, does an outhouse need a foundation? I have no idea. Um, uh, but they're there and they're rubbed smooth. I mean, someone planted them there a long time ago. So wait, like so, you know, South Jersey is kind of bucolic. Like there's, or at least there are parts of it that are like quite totally very, very beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're- yeah, my town is, um, farmer's markets and that whole thing. Like I had a buddy, uh, his dad lived in a place in South Jersey, I guess not far from Princeton. Mm-hmm. I, forget, I forget the name of the town. It's a, God, what was the town? But anyway, uh, I years and years ago, 
when I was uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail, or when I was actually finishing up, I went down there and stayed with him at his folks' place for like you know a few nights. And his dad, mm-hmm. his dad lived in South Jersey, and like as like some sort of hobby, had like sheep on his property. Yeah, and like I'm that sure. that surprised me. Like I was expecting all of in Jersey, you know, all of New Jersey to be kind of like industrial uh, and uh, urban, and uh, right. but there's actually like quite a beautiful countryside in South Jersey, especially. Yeah, and people think that the Garden State is a joke. I grew up um, after we left Los Angeles, we moved to Bergen County, which is the very northeast corner of the state, the New York suburbs up there. Um, and I was, we were so New York centric that. Um, and this makes me sound like I'm less smart than I am, but like, it didn't occur to me until I was probably 12 or 13 that New Jersey had its own government because I just assumed that the people in New York city sort of did all that for us. You know, like I didn't, I didn't really think that New Jersey was a separate entity. Um, and when you're up there, I mean, it's sort of where the Sopranos were shot and it's, it's very, um, it's very urban, frankly, and it has all of the, the, like New York is sort of trickled out into the atmosphere. So you have traffic and it's expensive. And then, and then you leave, and actually, Philadelphia, it turns out. So I'm, I'm in between Princeton and Philly. Philly is great. Philly is really a lovely, charming city. It's p- much poorer than New York, and it's more dangerous than New York. But there's, a, um, I think, a really an artistic spirit that simply has been stamped out in New York because it's just too damn expensive. Right. Um, where it's very easy if you want to make music or you want to write or you want to do both or you want to make art or you want to like, you know, set up your loom and start like weaving stuff. That ha- I know lots of people who are living very interesting artistic lives. You, in know, Philly. you, you know lots of people who are weaving? <laughs> I know so many weavers. If I if one more person gives me a you know like a goddamn uh, shawl, I'm gonna kill someone. No, but I do know people who um, have done do just do weird stuff, and it's sort of okay. Like you you can live and do weird stuff. Um, and they're less precious about it. Like I was just in Portland, and of course I you know I have to love Portland. I do love Portland. It was really fun. But there's a, a you know everyone in Portland sort of in on the joke. Like they all know that it's hilarious that they're you know making. Or organic tattooed dye in their backyard or whatever they're doing. Whereas in Philly, it's just, it's, it's sort of too real for that. Like Philly, it's just, it's, it's not, people aren't pretentious or funny about what they do. They just do it. Also, it's a team that's just, I mean, it's a team, it's a, it's a town that has such, um, that gets its hopes, you know, it's heartbroken, like on the regular, like every Sunday when the Eagles play for the most part. So I think that keeps it pretty, um, well, it's, down to earth. It's got, Philly's got kind of a David complex. I mean, it's totally. because it's got proximity to New York and there's all this, mm-hmm. there's all this pride, but it always feels like sort of like the, the stepchild or something, you know? Because mm-hmm. uh, one of my students bitterly complains when you get on I-95 from DC, it says this way, New York, you know, New York North or something as though the country's fifth largest city isn't in between. It's <laughs> <laughs> just not even there. But I like that. I'm, you know, I'm a sucker for underdogs. There's something I like. There's something about Philly, even though I've spent like zero time in Philly. You'd uh, like it. I can tell. I've, You'd I've, really like I've it. I've passed through, but I do have like a, I have some sort of like uh, instinct, you know, instinctual love for it, or I have some sort of affection for it and the people there, you know, just by I don't even know what. Maybe watching the Eagles lose. Who knows? Right. How can you not love? I mean, there are a million reasons not to love Michael. I mean, there are many reasons not to love the Eagles. But if you were, I'm in a mixed marriage, and then I'm married and. Eagles fan having grown up not one and you know I love my husband so much and I watch him like just it's like watching him watch a bucket of like kittens set on fire every Sunday it's <laughs> awful 
and like you just you just love him so much more because it's so sad and you want to fix it and you can't fix it. <laughs> and I was training our kid who's five to be an Eagles fan, so I know I'm gonna like love my kid even more because it's so pathetic and it's so you know, I don't know. And, sports, and, oh, sorry, yeah. sports fandom is is very strange uh, because you know I I have like I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. It was solidified. Wait, in, what? Uh, yeah, what? From, I was born in Wisconsin. Oh, okay. These things I think these things solidify in childhood. Yeah, they're not. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to adopt. I mean, for me, like I have not formed any similar allegiance in my adult years. I can't do it because I think rationally, I know but the like, Dodgers, the Dodgers are kind of like, do you, do you, I mean, aren't they in the, the playoffs right now? That's they like are, good, they are, but I, yeah. I, I gotta be honest. I, I root for them and it'd be fun to go sit through a game at the stadium, but like, I just can't get emotionally invested. I'm not capable yeah. of it. And like, I think like rationally, I think to myself, this is silly. Like, I don't really care who these players are. I'm really just cheering for the uniform. It changes every year. It's like you're just mm-hmm. cheering for a uniform, and yeah. um, and then these guys are getting paid millions of dollars. And if the team sucks, like why are you putting yourself through this? You know, like that. I have all these thoughts, and yet if I watch a Packers game and they lose, like I feel a little ill. <laughs> yeah, totally. You eat fattening food and, and beat somebody. No, I know. It's I know. Strange. It's we, very strange. Yeah. Well, I so I grew up a Mets fan, which oh, I think is like the er yeah right. So I was ten. In uh, when they last won the Super Bowl, uh, the Super Bowl, geez, when they last won the World Series, and one of my earliest memories is of uh, being allowed to stay up late. Um, first of all, I remember the the playoffs. Um, they played the Astros, and there was a, a pitcher named Mike Scott who had something called a split finger fastball, which was like completely unconquerable by the Mets. And those Mets were such douchebags. They were like, you know, coke-addled like gang rapists. They were terrible people. P.S. There's a back. There's like a like a follow up story to that, but um, but I didn't know that because I was ten, and my dad never sat me down and was like, "Listen, your heroes are all coke adults, <laughs> gang rapists." So so they got to the game six of that playoff series, and then they had to win game six because they were going to win. They were going to face Mike Scott again if there was a game seven. And, um, and, you know, we grew up in sort of a liberal atheist home, but we, and the, the TV was in our basement and the basement had this really scratchy carpeting. And I remember being on my knees praying next to my dad, who was younger than probably than I am now, because my parents had me as children. And, and we just, we like prayed desperately to Jesus or anyone. And after like 8,000 innings, the Mets won that game. And I truly thought that that would be as happy as I could ever be. <laughs> and then there was game six of the 1986 World Series where, um, due to the famous ineptitude of Bill Buckner, the, the Mets won, pulled out a game they should not have won. And that I thought was the happiest they could ever be. But what was really the happiest they could ever be, and I think this says something about who I am, was after they won the World Series, was reading the Boston papers, which my father managed to find for me. That was the happiest I could ever be. It was not just winning, but reading about the losers from the losers' <laughs> hometown paper. The follow-up to my Mets fandom was like, like fast forward, I don't know, 15 years or so. I'm sitting in a bar uh, in Soho waiting to meet a friend, and it's maybe 4.30 in the afternoon. It's like not yet quite drinking hour. And there's only one other person at the bar and it was sort of a nice place. And I look over and it's Keith Hernandez, who was the first baseman. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing. Totally. Mustache smoker. That's weird for a professional athlete. But um, wait, I have to interject. Oh, not, yeah. not that weird for a professional baseball player. There are a lot of smoke. Do they still do, do pro baseball players still smoke? Well, maybe not as much as they used to, but I think when I was a kid, um, it was way more common. Like I know, like Jim Leland, so the manager. Weird. 
you know, really? he, he smoked John Cruck, who played first base for the Phillies and was a great hitter. He used to smoke Marlboro Lights on the field, like during BP. <laughs> and I remember, I remember reading in a, an article in like Sports Illustrated about him, and it was like, you know, he's out there smoking, or someone sees him smoking, and it's like a, it's like a mother or a father with their kid at the game. And this woman says to him, I can't believe you smoke. You're a professional athlete. And he like flicks the cigarette into the grass and says, lady, I'm not a professional athlete. I'm a baseball player. Baseball players yeah. have always had like, I mean, tobacco's a thing, you know, with them. No, and tobacco, you know, and why not? I say to you, why not? Except that um, it's also kind of weird because you have to run a lot. But you know what? W- what do I know? The last time I played baseball, I think I was like four. But um where was I? Oh, right. So, so Keith Hernandez, who so he was not, maybe you could still even smoke in New York at that. I don't know. But he's at this bar and he's, and, and it's like just us and the bartender who in my memory is like a perfect, like sort of, you know, reddishly complected, rotund bartender with like a towel, you know, tucked in his apron or something. And he's like polishing glasses and, and I'm sitting there and I'm like desperate to say something to Keith Hernandez, like, cause you're my childhood hero is like four seats away from, you know, that, that's, that's like, that's, that's amazing. And, and that, when does that happen? And, and there he is. And I want to say something. And, uh, finally I push my cocktail napkin his way. And I'm like, you know, Mr. Hernandez, I'm sure that's what I said. Cause I'm polite. <laughs> Mr. Hernandez. Senor. Um, I just want you in what? I said, senor. <laughs> yes, exactly. Senor Hernandez. <laughs> I do not know of your heritage, but I assume, <laughs> Mr. Hernandez, you were my childhood hero, and you know, watching you and your and the 1986 Mets win the World Series was was probably the highlight of my life, you know, and I, it's so exciting for me to be sitting next to you and. I realize it sounds super cheesy and I, I hate, I know we're in New York and you're not supposed to talk to famous people, but, and I would never accept that you mean so much to me. So if, if you, I know it's corny, but could you just like put your name, could you just sign your name on this cocktail napkin? I will not talk to you anymore. I just want to have your signature on a cocktail napkin. And he looks down at his drink and he looks at me and he says, look, I just want to drink my fucking drink. Oh, the end. <laughs> What? Why can you even imagine? And then he leaves, and the bartender's like, "I could have told you he would say that." The guys are a asshole. Oh my <laughs> god! god. Oh. What a heartless bastard! Because like, and that's the day my childhood died. Yeah. No, I mean honestly, like a lot of these guys. I mean, not a lot, but some of these guys are assholes, and like. You know, I, I what are they doing? They are playing a game, a children's game for millions of dollars. And as far as I'm concerned, because I've thought about this a lot in the many years this has happened, this is the price you pay, right? Sorry, sorry, shithead. This is the price you pay. You're going to be play, you're going to be paid millions. You're going to be paid more than 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 a huge chunk of the world population. You know will ever see collectively in a lifetime right. to play baseball, then this is what you have to do in exchange. Every motherfucker who asks you for their ad for your signature, you have to give it. That's Every right. single one. Right. That's that's the trade off. I agree. And I think like Thank you. I mean it's not like he was being swarmed. And PS, like most people wouldn't even know. I mean I guess people in New York and Jersey would know, but um I mean, come on. You know, like the guy right. it was a quiet moment. I guess he you know, who knows what his issues are, but that's just shitty. Uh, and I, I mean, and right, he might have just found out that the smoking had given him cancer. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You don't think can I drink my fucking drink? Like that—that that to me was um, that was a moment. So yeah. yeah.
Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah. that I'm sorry that happened to you, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> I really Thank you. Feel for you. <laughs> but, but don't be too sorry because I get now I get a lot of mileage out of that story. My, palm, <laughs> my palms are sweating like in empathy. <laughs> and I also I was I was anticipating you saying that it wasn't him and it was just some dude with a mustache who like had like a right. but no it was him with the hair. It was so him. Oh my god. So, um, okay, writerly stuff. <laughs> Your parents. You said you lived in Jersey. You lived in the Bronx. You lived in Los <laughs> Angeles. Uh, do you, do you come from a, a tribe of, uh, artists? I mean, if you were, well, it's sort of funny. My, yes, no, my mother's a painter and she's really wonderful. Um, and I used to think in the way of kids, like all parents, all moms could like, you know, paint their kids portraits and, um, she can do that. So in the, <laughs> What? She can do that. She can like paint. She, oh, she, she painted lots of, and not, not sort of stiff oils, but these just really wonderful kind of personality rich you know, portraits of me and my siblings, um, or, you know, she would do, she did a series of our school, you know, the sort of like hilarious, um, school photos with like all the kids in rows. She did these sort of impressionistic, um, oversized school portraits, um, of class portraits. Yeah. She's, she's wonderful, but she, you know, she, I mean, she's a, she's a painter and she painted and she paints, um, a little bit for profit, but mostly just for pleasure. And my father is a physician, um, and he is the son of dry cleaners. And he, so he's the one. So, so my family's from the Bronx. I actually didn't live there, but but he grew up in a one-bedroom apartment. And he and his sister either shared the living room, or when they that they were older, um, there was a, a foyer that was his bedroom, or sometimes like there was like a kitchen nook, um, Wait, which sounds like all he slept in the what? hallway. Yeah, well, the the foyer. Um, what is a you foyer? know, no need to, What's the, difference? Yeah, the, the foyer, <laughs> um, yeah, which sounds like Dickensian and terrible, but actually it's how a lot of people, you know, that lived, I guess. Um, or, you know, I have no idea, but he never, ever acted like that it was bad. And I think it kind of wasn't bad because my, my grandparents were very loving. He was smart. He went to Stuyvesant, which was like, you know, for a kid from the Bronx, it was a fancy public high school, sort of like going to Harvard. He was the first person in the family to go to college. And I think he occupied a privileged position within the small apartment, but also, um, I, I just think that like you compare, you know, whatever your context is, is how you know how you're doing. And in his context, he was, you know, lots of his friends shared, like, you know, slept and shared the living room with siblings and, but not lots of his peers necessarily got full rides to college. So I think as far as he was concerned, he did pretty well. And he did do pretty well. And he went on and became a physician. And the reason we lived in L.A. is he did some of his medical training there. And, um, and but what that, what that also does to you is, I think, lends, you know, you, you end up being um, a little bit conservative, right? Because you, you weren't raised with much and then suddenly you've through, the, through that old – I don't even know if you can still do this anymore. I hope you can. But yeah, I was going to say – yeah. I mean, I think it's a very sort of, um, baby boomer, you know, sure. I was, he was, a grand... I was thinking that too. Like they, the baby boomers had a good ride, you know, from, they had such a good ride. Yeah. From like a yeah. social mobility standpoint. Right. You know? Right. And right. I think the middle class, I mean, this is another podcast maybe, but I think the middle class is just like this moment that's gone. It was like from world war two to like the seventies, the end of the seventies. And then, Union started dying, manufacturing started dying, and we're just waiting for the pieces to fall apart. So I think, though, that that, that, that middle class, I'm, I'm pretty cheerful, but I think that, um, so, so, but the baby boomers got to ride that 
sort of middle class um, solidity, you know, like like cultural moment. And my dad certainly did. And um, and now I think if you're born, you know, poor, you tend to stay poor. But then you didn't necessarily. So anyway, he, we, I grew up in this, you know, prosperous suburb. And um, when I said I might want to be a writer, my dad said that, that was cool that I should consider being an insurance underwriter. Um, and I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded like a job that had benefits. And that actually seemed pretty, you know, I, I didn't grow up thinking I would ever be a writer. It would be like growing up thinking I was going to be a movie star or something. I love to write, but writing people who got to become writers were just not me. And I, I got an MFA in creative writing because I was 21 when I started and I didn't know what else I could possibly do and graduate school seemed like a good thing. And truly I thought, okay, I'll finish when I'm 23 and then I will be a grown up, and then I'll become an insurance underwriter or something else. Or I'll, what I really thought is I would do marketing or, you know, something that was like a little creative involved a little bit of writing, but certainly involved an office and healthcare and a 401k and, you know, and a life that was predictable because um, that's what I grew up with. That's what was expected of me. And I, it didn't, I didn't have the imagination, although I wanted to be a fiction writer, I don't think I had the imagination to consider that it could be any other way. Um, and then when I was um, getting an MFA, I gave a reading downtown in New York, and an editor heard me. Much like Claudia Schiffer being discovered in a German mall, <laughs> I, um, except not at all, I was uh, discovered sort of by an editor who heard me read a story, liked what he heard, he, he was part of a very, you know, he represented a tiny press. He helped me up with an agent. He bought this collection, my graduate school thesis. He published my first book and that's, that's sort of how I got started. And that was it. And so you, have you ever, did you ever work like a cube job or like a marketing? Yeah. Company? Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. And I think that that's really important. Um, I now, since I'm, I work in academia, I work with a lot of people who've never done that. And I think that it, it's it's very problematic. I think that it really limits your imagination. If you don't know what it's like to have to clock in and clock out, to have to manage your vacation days, um, to have to trade off, you know, when you're going to go to the doctor versus when your boss needs you. I, I think that that's a very, you know, obviously it's a certain, it's that, even that kind of job is very privileged, right? You're, you're, you're being taken care of in all sorts of ways that you're not if you're working at Walmart. But nevertheless, there's such a gulf between that kind of job and an academic job where you're part of shared governance and you're supposed to be um, accountable only to your, your best instincts and yourself, especially if you have tenure, that, uh, that I think it's, it's, it really keeps you to remove from what it's like to, to work, to, to really work, to work a job you don't like, to work a job that doesn't just celebrate your intellectual um, prowess. So anyway, I was a secretary is what I'm saying. And I, <laughs> I worked, um, after I published that, that first book, I would get up at... I was living in Brooklyn, obviously, and I was working in Midtown at a nonprofit as a secretary. And uh, I'd be in the office at nine. I'd be on the train by like eight fifteen. So I would get up at five five thirty, uh, write for two hours, on, uh, write a novel. Because now that I'd published one book, I could not publish another book. And, uh, and I was so young and I was so stupid that I just sort of assumed I would, like you know, publish that book, and then I wouldn't have to be a secretary anymore, and life would be great. And that's kind of what happened, except for the life being great part. Um, <laughs> I I did publish that book. I did publish it for enough money that I didn't have to be a secretary anymore, which was incredible. It did allow me to adjunct for a year and while I sent out resumes um, or CVs. 
but it didn't sell. That book was called Reproduction of the Flaw of Love. It was published in 2004. It didn't sell. And so what I was too young and way too dumb to know is that I just, since I just cost Random House a lot of money, it was going to be very hard for me to publish the next thing. Um, which you shouldn't have to know when you're 26 or 27. Well, like, you know, it, why it, should you know that? So many writers, myself included, uh, I mean, and I guess like unless you have some history in publishing or a parent who's involved in it or you're just very precocious and have better business instincts than most artistically inclined people, uh, so many writers get into the business of publishing very naive to the prospects. Like I just totally. I just figured like, okay, once you get in through the door, then the money's going to rain down. <laughs> like so, so like I look back and just like, what in the, you know, what was I thinking? And uh, well, what was your first? Did you have a sort of like high and low? Yeah, I thing? mean, I think well, the book, the book published. I thought like, oh my god, you know, this is it. And then uh, the book hit like the L.A. Times bestseller list for a brief time, and I thought this is mm-hmm. it. Like, I'm done. Yeah, you know, like I thought. Yeah, and just fool, you know, just like not quite getting it. And then also being, I think, um, in our defense, you know, like our you know from a generational perspective, being involved in the business at this particular time in the business's history, uh, things have been very fluid and the the ground has been moving under our feet maybe more rapidly than it was in past eras. So, you know, maybe it was harder for us to understand or predict exactly what the terrain was like, but you know, it's yeah. a, it's a very difficult, uh, business. And, um, I guess you sort of just learn that through experience or most of us do. I, I think you have to, it's such a cliche, right? Like, you know, everyone says you only have, the only reason to write is because you love to write. If you do it for any other reason, including whatever you think the joy of publishing will be, you are um, bound to be crushed. And um, for me, you know, I expect, I'm working on a new book right now, so I expect that I will be able to publish that book because um, I think I got, you know, one more, as Eminem said, I think, one more opportunity. Um <laughs> But after that, and it's not even that I don't that I don't think that someone else would publish me or that I don't think I'd ever write again, but I don't know if I can, like, who knows? I'm sure I'm totally lying right now. But, like, I imagine after that, I can't, my imagination doesn't go far enough for the after I'm done with what I'm writing to imagine what the publishing landscape will look like and if that's even something I can handle. Um, being on this book tour has been really just... In moments, it's been wonderful, and then in moments, it's been so disheartening just talking to booksellers even about what they're facing. And so, yeah. yeah. It's tough. And um, I think that, you know, writing, the, the creative act of writing uh, is so demanding and difficult, you know. It's not, any, it's not a simple thing to do, and it requires great discipline and endurance and all the rest. And then on top of that, to be expected to have like mastery over like the business aspect of publishing, yeah. that's a tall order, you know? Like, right. And then to, to be asked to be your, you know, a, a great sort of social mediator, a great, you know, to, to do all of that. Um, you know, I, I can, I, I'm trying my best to sell this book. I'm trying so hard. My last book though, um, was called A Friend of the Family. And that was a book that was really hard to sell after I had spiked, you know, the Random House book. Um, and I finally sold that book years later after having, it was rejected a whole bunch before Algonquin bought it. And, you know, I was blessed with I having no 
I didn't know much about Algonquin before I, I got involved with them, but they really, they're very old school. They care. And they publish a very small list, mostly literary fiction. They care an awful lot. They still send their authors, a lot of them on pretty great tours. They, right. they do a lot of media. I mean, they're really like carriers with their books and they got my last book on the New York Times bestseller list for a week, which was a very nice week. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, the reason that it sold at all was because Amazon put it on the homepage for the bulk of the month back when Amazon still put books on its homepage, which now I think it puts vacuum cleaners in the Kindle. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, you can't control that. And I'm pretty sure if Amazon hadn't done that, the book wouldn't have sold. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know. And it was reviewed everywhere. It was reviewed in USA Today and People and the Wall Street Journal and Wait, you know, didn't uh, didn't Stephen King interview you? And I did a thing with Stephen King. Yeah, I mean, I we did all of this stuff. I'm telling you, the only thing that mattered in that book were the two things. One, it was on the homepage of Amazon. And then two, they sold it. For, Amazon sold it for a dollar ninety nine the ebook for a month, and that's what got it on the New York Times bestseller list. Because they're like, yeah, fuck it, it's cheap. I'll buy it. Wow. That's it. Wow. Not Stephen King. Not I don't think you can borrow any of Stephen King's fame as much as you maybe, but I can, you know, not. People magazine, not these, you know, I just, I think it, it's, and, and you can't control what Amazon does. And I don't want to be at the mercy of Amazon anyway. Right. But I, I really, and this book, uh, The Explanation for Everything, was also an Amazon.com best, best book of the month, but it wasn't the, the best book of the month. That was Jump Lahiri's book. So instead, this book was sort of, was on there, but you had to look for it. No one wants to look for it. Jump so, you know. Jumper. Jumper. Did I say, did I say it right? Is it Jumper or Jumper? I have no idea. I think Jumper. Right. Jumper. I, Jumper. Uh, apologies. Jumper. Uh, you don't roll with her? No. Uh. I, tried to, I tried to get her on the show, but she was too uh, busy to talk to me. The busy so lady. I'm a little bitter. <laughs> Jumper. Um, so you're very funny. I didn't realize this oh. about you before I got you on the phone. Uh, you, have a yeah. good, you have a good wit. Uh, I'm curious. Thanks. I feel like a lot of times witty people, uh, funny people, uh, you know, it's, it's like a medicine you know you're met you're trying to um defend yourself against the you're calling me fat world. no are you saying that i'm fat because i started with the food thing and now you're saying no. i use humor as a way to <laughs> no i'm That's saying cool. i'm saying do you have a dark side? do you have a dark side that we need to know about have you ever struggled with like depression or do you have you ever had anxiety uh, not depression i'm very undepressed i'm very i'm I'm truly i think i'm a hugely happy person but my happiness sometimes veers off into anxiety so i i do this crazy thing i on my phone where i should have only adorable pictures of my son i have like six adorable pictures of my son and a lot of pictures of like the oven turned off and the parking brake pulled off up and that is how i manage my anxiety because if i have a picture to refer to then i don't have to do what i used to do before i had an iphone which would be to call parking attendants to tell me that the parking brake was pulled up or to call my landlord to tell me that the oven was turned off, which P.S. does not endear one to one's landlord. Um, so I've had some anxiety issues, but um, like they seem to be mitigated. Like, what is it? Like? A, a, a very small amount, probably, you know, just um, almost placebo levels of medication combined with a picture-taking habit that's a little bit weird. I will tell you that before, and, and it, it so is um, sort of uh, mo- modified by whatever stress I'm about to face. So I was pretty hyped up about this trip I'm currently on yeah. because I didn't know, just because it, it looked pretty hard. I mean, I, you know, Chicago, Portland, Portland, Rhode Island, the Portland, Rhode Island route is not a well-trod one. You know, so I just was like, I, I don't know how I get through this, but I took my picture of the parking brake and I got on the shuttle to the airport in Philly and I was like, this is cool. And when I felt nervous, I looked at the picture and then this is, 
This is how I knew I was stressed out. I started imagining that I hadn't locked the door of the car. Now, I could give a shit. You can steal my Honda. I don't care. Like, I'm not worried about someone stealing the car. This is what I'm worried about. That a psychopath will find out, will, will see my car, note that it is unlocked somehow, open the door, put the car in neutral, put down the parking brake, and leave it there to run into an old lady. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That's elaborate. That's, that's, I mean, you're a fiction writer. Yeah. Well, I'm a fiction writer. Yeah. I'm a fiction writer. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, wait, so you take a picture of your parking brake like every time you park your car just so that you can... Mm, I would say any long-term... Yeah, if I'm feeling guilty or anxious, like if I if I'm putting if I'm having a babysitter pick up my kids so I can go to New York and like you know have lunch and go shopping, then I definitely take a picture of the parking brake because I assume that the cosmic um, retribution for for sticking my kid with a babysitter while I go eat and shop is that I'm going to kill somebody with my car. <laughs> but if I take a parking brake, if I take a picture of the parking brake, that won't happen. So where? But you- like if I'm just going shopping, I don't. Okay, so do you have a lot of fixation on automobile. Like, is that... Yeah, totally. Do you mm-hmm. know why? I mean, did, did you have, like, a fear of driving or something? Or Oh, do, do you want to get sad about this? I'll yeah, get sad. That's go. cool, Brad. Let's, let's get sure, on. let's, let's do this. Um, I don't really have a fear of driving. My grandmother was killed by a, a driver. Um, she was 82. She was great. She was in great health. She was shopping in the Bronx. Um, my brother was flying, and my brother went to college in... in Montreal at McGill, he was flying from Montreal to uh, New York because he was going to have a medical school interview at Einstein. So we were all going to congregate at her house that night to have dinner before his interview at Einstein in the Bronx the next day. And uh, she was out shopping, and it was the last snowy day of March, and she was killed by a car. It just skidded and hit her, and that was that. Um, and she died perversely in at Einstein. And then more perversely, my brother, not knowing what else to do, went on the interview, and he wanted to be a or he is now a surgeon, so they took him to um, the trauma, I guess, the surgeon, the surgery, I don't know what they call those, the ORs, uh, including where my grandmother died, at which point he's like, you know what, I don't think I can do this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he left. I guess not. I mean, my um, Which I would say is not the reason that, that, it, that I think that I was an anxious person. I think that what veered my anxiety towards cars is that, but I, I, it would be a total lie to say that I was not anxious about accidents before that happened. I think that that just uh, really turned me towards the, the hazards of the automobile. Okay, so because this is the thing. Like, mm-hmm. I have a little bit of this. I think everybody has a little bit of uh, fear of accidents and the mechanical things and modes of transportation, flying, driving in cars. Like, when you think about the most dangerous things that human beings do, the things that we are afraid of, like, I think people should be more afraid of driving in cars than they are. Like, Yes. We are in these steel boxes going like yes. 80 miles an hour and like there's also texting. We're all fucking texting. Yeah. I know. It's a disaster. Yeah. It's like, you know, so like I was last night driving on the freeways in Los Angeles and clearly this guy was either drunk or falling asleep or, but he literally almost just drifted over and clipped us in a five lane, you know, five lane LA freeway yep. scenario. And I was just thinking to myself, this is nuts. Like all these right. cars, how does this even work? You know, like this, right. There should be more. It doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's been yeah. Crazy. And anyone can drive, right? Like yeah. anyone. Yeah. You can just pretty much drive. They let old people drive. Right. Old people who should not be driving. I say this as a future old person. Like, you know, it, it's very hard to keep us from driving. What I do think will save us, I do, I do expect in my 
lifetime and hopefully in my son's lifetime, like before he can drive, I think that cars will start driving themselves more and more. Well, I had that conversation with my wife not too long ago where I'm like, you know, there's a chance when our daughter is 16 that we're going to be able to get her a driverless car, which I would love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just put her in, give her her alcohol. <laughs> right. Right. Here, honey. Here, yeah. Just roll one for her, right. hand it over. <laughs> you have fun now, sweetie. Yeah. Just tell, <laughs> tell the car to get her home safely and you right. know, program it or yeah. whatever. But it's like, you know. That's not the worst thing in the world to take. I mean, and I guess human error can always be factored in to the equation. Like, it's not like if we have driverless cars that are automated that, that there will be no errors or mistakes or accidents. But it, it would seem like it would have the potential to dramatically reduce that risk, right? I think that I think that you know that, that that's one of the, you know that that traffic will be less. Like humans are super dumb. I think, um, and and we're we're dumb. Even those of us who think we're smart aren't that smart. Um, but of course everyone thinks they're smart, so I don't know, but like, and everyone thinks they're a good driver, but, but we don't, we just don't, we always think of ourselves as exceptions to the rule. So it's like, Oh, I'll just make this one phone call while I'm driving or, Oh, I'll just, you know, I'm not that drunk. I'm sure I can make it home or, Oh, you know, in a million ways that don't have anything to do with driving. We always consider ourselves exceptional and we're not. And, um, and, it, and, and life is, is dangerous in part because of that. Um, I've decided that what will happen when my son is of, of driving age is that I will cut off his hands <laughs> because I'm sorry. I am an only child. I am not losing that kid to a, you know, teenage drunken. No. Mm -mm. Right. It's going to be a nightmare when they get older. I'm, I'm already like, it's easy. And the thing too, about being a fiction writer and, and, um, mm -hmm. having anxiety, I, I think the two can kind of go hand in hand because your mind, if you're predisposed yeah. to write fiction is naturally, going to create scenarios and imagine uh, possibilities and causalities and things that could happen. You know, that's what we Absolutely. do. And, Always. Yeah. And I think too, like I have like a certain like lack of faith or diminished faith in, uh, human beings. Like, like you just said, human beings are dumb, including. <laughs> And then yeah. you think about like, you know, the possibilities of human error, like people putting together these engines, like anything could happen. Like, it's amazing to me. I guess in some ways I'm kind of amazed by us because I feel like we're we're too dumb to be doing this well in certain areas. I know. But, but it's hard for me not to fixate a little bit on just the possibility, like one switch or some somebody not doing their job or some piece of machinery becoming faulty. Like it's easy to let your mind go on those those kinds of things. And I guess you just have to trust. I mean, this is what your book sort of deals with. You just have to kind of have faith. Like, do you have faith? Well, I'm not class. I don't have. I'm. I don't have. You know, faith in a supernatural deity or anything like that. I'm not a, a theist, and I don't. Although I, I very, I, unlike a lot of um, atheists, I, I have great respect for w why people need that belief. Why, um, do they, why do they need it? Well, I just think people need all because life is hard and because we're full of anxiety and because people's grandmothers get killed crossing the street and because, you know, kids get cancer and because things are hard and they don't make any sense, offering yourself up to something that knows more than you do, that, that has designed a grander plan for all of us, that put us here for a reason, that is really not just comforting, but I think for some people it's life-saving. Like, I think some people could not go on without that trust that there is a reason for all of this that, that is out there either for us to find or to never find, but it's there. Okay. But, okay. Um, and I follow you yeah. there. I follow you there. Okay. This is where I, I'm wired differently. And I think maybe, okay. maybe you are too, but it's like, 
I get all that. And I know, I mean, I'm fully aware that life is really difficult and I have my share of anguish and anxiety and pain and suffering and all that kind of stuff. But I am incapable of giving myself up to something that I can't rationally, uh, like I can't, I can't say to myself, there's a, there's a God in the sky. No, totally. No, I can't either. I don't believe that for one second. I, sometimes I wish I did because I, I think it would be too. nice. It would be great. It would no. be wonderful. <laughs> but don't, but here, so, no, no, no. So what I'm just saying is, is it's not, do you believe that? I don't. And I wouldn't, Brad, I wouldn't expect that you did either necessarily, but, <laughs> Um, but the question then becomes, but how do you feel about people who do believe that? Like, are you a Dawkins type who, um, considers anyone who believes in a supernatural deity, you know, like sort of a, a mouth breathing idiot, or do you understand where people need to find, do you understand why people need faith and do you okay. kind of respect that? Need? I think about this a lot. I think about okay. this a lot because I was, you know, I was raised Catholic. My parents are practicing Catholics. I have like, you know, my, my aunts were nuns. My uncle's a priest. Like I come from a, yeah, I come from a yeah. Catholic Southern family. Um, so I have that element, you know, of people who are super into it, but like, I'm sort of like an outlier in my family. Uh, and then, you know, I think about this stuff. I'm trying to make sense of my life and I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to condemn people who are religious. What I would hope for, I guess, is uh, a more open and at times honest conversation about these issues and for a more grown-up interpretation of religious dogma. Um, I think that at the level of interpretation is where I get most frustrated. And I wish that... And, and I also think, because I, I think like... Where I envy religious people and where I think the most value probably comes from, you know, comes for religious people comes from actually the human aspect more than the supernatural. Like I think community, Absolutely. community right. and ritual and charity and all of these things that you can get within the context or the framework of a religion are really uh, beneficial. And I, and I can understand why people would, would go there. I would, I would love more of those things in my life. But what stops me is that I cannot get down with like, there's a devil and there's a God in the sky who invented the world in seven days and Jonah in the belly of the whale. And like, to me, that's a little to, to, to fixate or to, I don't know, to let yourself be sort of steamrolled by those kinds of allegories, uh, in a way that right. presents right. them or for, 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 for nine of the 12 Republican primary, you know, candidates back in, I guess, 2011 say that, they didn't believe in evolution. <laughs> right, right, exactly, <laughs> right. For that to be, um, like Chris Christie in New Jersey won't say that he necessarily, he sort of sidesteps the question. Because to admit that you believe in science somehow makes you unpalatable to a, a large swath of American voters. Yeah, no, I have no sympathy for that. Right. Um, but I belong to, as an, as an atheist, I belong to a synagogue. Um, I send my kid to Hebrew school. I do this because we moved to New Jersey from Brooklyn. I knew no one, um, but we found a very progressive synagogue in Philadelphia. And I signed up because I wanted community. And they don't care if I believe in God at all. But, but I joined the club or the group, I guess, where when anyone has a baby, they send out an email and you, everyone signs up for a day and I make, you know, casserole or some lasagna or something, and I bring it to their house with a little note that says "Welcome to the world, baby." Aww. And um, and I do, and it feels great. It feels great. It feels great. I don't know these people. You know, right. they don't. Right. I write Lauren. They don't. They probably don't know who I am. But 
But the fact that like this gives me a legitimate unspooky way to you know to to interact with people to make their day a little better. It's or or not because maybe they don't like lasagna. But like I you know I I think that as you just said, religion can religious communities any kind of community, but often religious communities can offer um, that opportunity and that that I think is is really essential to being human. I mean, we're social, right? We like to connect to people. We feel, most of us feel weird when we don't. And I think one of the reasons that, that church going is so important to the American experience is in, is because of the suburbs and because of the fact that we're so fractured and we're so fragmented and we're so far away from one another. So if you can go to church and you can play on a softball team and you can have lunch with friends and your kids can meet other kids and you're connected to something, you're not quite so atomized. I think who wouldn't want that? The supernatural stuff is, and 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 if maybe if believing in 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 that kind of supernatural stuff is the price you pay, like maybe people are willing to believe anything because it feels so good to be surrounded by other people who believe the same thing. I think I don't know. I think there's some truth to that. It's like the social confirmation thing, where if you have enough people in a room all nodding their head at the same time, you know, it's like it sort of makes it okay or it makes it feel better. I mean, like that's a powerful that's yeah. a powerful effect, you know, but. I think that for me personally, I'm just, you know, just me personally, like it would be so great to have all the community things that you talked about, but I would love to have like really interesting conversations about, um, mysticism and this stuff fascinates me. I just, the the level of conversation is what discourages me. And I, I think, um, that I'm probably, uh, you know, ignorant to, places where I could get what I'm talking about. Yeah. My guess would be, especially in a place like Los Angeles, um, that there are places like that all over, you right, know, right. um, I think they call them Unitarians, but no, I don't know. I think you can find, um, all sorts of communities that, that try to offer fellowship and, and then sort of intelligent, um, arena to discuss this stuff. Did you, um, did for, you in writing this book and like a considering intelligent design, you know, in an empathic way, uh, you know, did you, did your position on things move at all? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Did you great? I mean, you must've gained a greater understanding of how people who might be really into intelligent design might think, or how people who might fall on the opposite end of the religious or political spectrum might think like, what did it teach you? Well, I think what I learned was I didn't learn to sort of respect intelligent design or its place and, you know, whatever kind of academic discourse it wants to be part of or people who believe in it want it to be part of. What I did, though, I think, was gain a greater understanding for why people need to believe it. Um, and this comes, in fact, from my, my son was not a great sleeper when he was born, and I'd spent a lot of nights, and I'm not a great sleeper to begin with, so um, he would fall asleep in my arms, and I'd be afraid to like put him back in his crib, so I would sit up in his room reading, and I started reading all my old college books, including did you, did Darwin. You, did you take a picture of him while he was... <laughs> Yeah, right. Just to make sure. Yeah, I took pictures of. I took a video of him breathing, and then um, I, uh, I I I read some Darwin, and uh, and it's a really spooky thing to have your, you know, your precious newborn or your you know your baby in your lap, reading about um, evolution. If you if you read on the origin of species, there are moments that are a little bit chilling in it, where you just where it just it sort of drives home. The truth, which is that we are here due to environmental pressures that selectively um, created us, and that my son is no different, right? This, this like slightly holy thing that I have in my lap is actually, you know, 
an, an accident of, of, of genetics and an environment and, and there was no grand plan for him. And then when he dies, he will go into the earth and, and that's that's that, right? If I want to think about immortality, I can think about the DNA that I've given him, and then if he has children, there will be some DNA that that DNA is the immortal part of us if, as long as you have kids. And that's that's a little nice, but you can't like play catch with the DNA, and you can't take you know. There's no DNA is not going to like be like, oh, that was my grandma. So so I, I felt very unsettled by the experience of reading Darwin soon after I had a kid. Um, which I didn't plan. I mean, it was just simply that, like, I, I read the voy- on the, voy- the Voyage of the Beagle, which is great, by the way. If, if anyone who's listening hasn't read that, it's this very cool travelogue. It talks about South America before it was South America, really, before it was populated. And it's very neat. Um, so when I was done with that, I, I started the spe- on the Origin of Species. And, and I was not expecting the, the sort of chilling nature of what that means to read that when your kids, when your baby is asleep. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, know, I don't know how many new parents read The Origin of the Species in the Dark of Night. I totally recommend it. It's psychedelic. And or it just will put your ass to sleep again, and that's good, too. No, I, it was, either, it, way, it, either way, you know. You're yeah. a winner, you know? <laughs> well, uh, this has been really fun. This has been a great conversation. I can't believe we're already Oh, it's over? Oh, my gosh, that went fast. I this mean, is we... so fun. We should do this all the time. Yeah, right. Just once a <laughs> Um, so you go to, you said Exeter next, you're in Providence right now, then Exeter. And then do you have further tour plans or what? Oh, oh hell yes. Yeah. Um, I'm in San Francisco. I got a lit quake. Uh, right. and then, um, in November I'm at Elliott Bay and Powell's and then the Miami book fair. Okay. Yeah. So they're sending you around. Um, um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. been it's been really fun. Congratulations! I'm glad we got to feature this book in the TMB Book Club. Oh, I am too. Did I say thank you? Thank you. No, I'm really really it's excited. So rude! I can't believe you did not. <laughs> you had to be you had to be goaded into thanking me. <laughs> but no, it's a it's a great pleasure. I've had so much fun talking with you. I congratulate you, and I wish you all the best on uh, um, the tour and on the next book. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really fun. All right, everybody, there she is. That is Lauren Grodstein. Go get her novel. It is called The Explanation for Everything, and it is available now from the good people at Algonquin Books. You can find Lauren online at laurengrodstein.com. She's on the Facebook. She has a Tumblr, and she's also on Twitter, at Lauren Grodstein. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, Don't forget to join the TNB Book Club. You can do that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. And uh, also, don't forget about the Other People app, the official app of this program. Uh, You need it, desperately, even if you don't realize it. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program, and it's available now free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. If you haven't done it already, the app itself is free. Uh, Okay, so there you go. I enjoyed that conversation. I feel good about this episode, and I really do feel a little punchy today, which I I assume you can uh, infer. I'm imagining that it's obvious. I think I'm just exhausted and uh, highly caffeinated. But right now, all things considered, I feel good about my delivery. Uh, At the same time, I am aware of the fact that this could be uh, one of those instances where 
uh, I wake up tomorrow and uh, I feel differently. Like today I feel bullish, tomorrow I could wake up, listen to the playback, and uh, be gravely concerned, which is a recurring theme in my life uh, and in my creative life. My entire creative life is essentially built on a surge of amphetamine-fueled optimism uh, followed by the inevitable crash into sluggishness and regret. Please remember that Winston Churchill and Napoleon both failed Latin and that Swinburne once called Ralph Waldo Emerson a toothless baboon. That is it for now. Uh, that's everything. Thanks to Lauren Grodstein. Once again, go get her novel. Thanks to Algonquin Books. Uh, I'll be back soon with more uh, conversation, more digression, more confession. Come back in three days, and uh, I will once again unload on you in a rambling, amphetamine-fueled episode of somewhat disquieting psychic nudity. How do you like that? You find that enjoyable? Let's listen to some birds chirping for just a moment, shall we? Yeah.